You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Hey wine lovers, as you probably know, First Bottle Wines has been sponsoring the show for a while now. I use First Bottle to find all the best deals on really high quality wines. They're carefully curated so you always know you're going to get a great bottle. They've got all your favorites, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sparkling, whatever you love. So go to firstbottlewines.com right now and use my code GOLDENWESTPOD. That's GOLDENWESTPOD. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and you'll have wine show up on your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex. Maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Jenna Davis, the associate winemaker at Dumal. Enjoy my conversation with Jenna. Jenna, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. It's great having you here. We're going to talk about all things Dumal. We're going to get into the wines, the vineyard, and the philosophy. But first, let's go back and learn a little bit about your history and how you ended up in the wine business and working over in Sonoma. Yeah, so um, I'm actually from the very famous winemaking region of uh, Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I actually, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, born and raised. And, you know, my, my mom was maybe a little bit of a hippie and, and very into gardening, so. When I, when I grew up, I was always, always in the outdoors. So climbing trees, helping her garden. And so from a really young age, I developed this really deep kind of fascination with, with plants. And so that's kind of where my, my interests started. And then in high school, I, my first job was at our local plant nursery. So, and then in the summers I would go and help all the, the you know, 80-year-olds who were volunteering at our, our local arboretum. And so I had this, this kind of deep fascination with plants. And I was the, the youngest sibling. And so I kind of saw my, my older siblings go to college and you know, not be really sure what they wanted to do and kind of pick these random majors. So I decided from in high school that I really wanted to find something I was really excited about to do. And I had two criteria. I, I didn't want to be in a, a building every day. And I um, knew, I, although I loved the sciences, I didn't want to go the, the medical route. And so, you know, I really started looking into different things that I was interested in. And it was actually an older sibling of a family friend, Karen Kohler, she was from Ohio and she was a winemaker in Napa Valley. And as a, a Midwest kid, you know, it's nobody even considers the wine industry. It's just not something that you're really aware of. So I, I heard of this woman and I just thought, oh, that is totally fascinating. So early on, like in, in high school, I would say, oh, I want to be a winemaker. I didn't really know anything about it, but that's what I, I wanted to do. So um, I, I pestered my parents and they finally let me go visit her. So in high school, 
I actually went out to Napa and, and visited Karen Kohler. She's from Cincinnati, Ohio, and she um, was early in, in Mandavi and then became a, a successful consultant winemaker in Napa and, and started her own label called Kohler Wines and just makes made beautiful wines. And she's now happily retired. But so, so in high school, I, I went out there and I visited her and it was, you know, early harvest time and I followed her out to the vineyards and, you know, she's walking through these rows of vines and there's these beautiful, dark, deep purple clusters and she's picking off little berries and putting it in this bag and squishing up all the berries and she drops a little juice onto this refractometer, is, which is what we use to measure the, the sugar and grapes to help make picking decisions. And I was just, that was, that was it. I was, I was sold at that point. Um, I was totally determined to be a winemaker. Oh, that sounds like such a cool story. I often hear, as you mentioned, winemaking is not just a direct path where people come in from all different walks of life, unless you're kind of from a winemaking family or something like that. Um, so that's really interesting to hear your story. It sounds like you came from it as far as working from plants, working with plants and doing the volunteering and those type of things, as you mentioned, and then obviously going out to meet her and having that eye-opening experience. What was your next step to kind of lead you down the path? Was it kind of like, okay, I want to jump in and start working a harvest or was it um, something along the lines of I have to be able to study this while I'm going to school or how, how did that next step take you yeah so so ultimately i go back i'm still you know just a teenager in, in dayton ohio and right uh, yeah so so then i i actually ended up doing my undergrad i i followed my family tradition and went to ohio state and um you know the ohio state i'm sorry buckeye fans out there um so i went to ohio state and i majored in uh food science which was kind of the closest I could get to to winemaking there. And I was always I always planned to transfer to UC Davis, but I met my my now husband and I was having quite a lot of fun and enjoying food science. So I actually stayed and, and finished my my bachelor's in food science there. And I, I tried to get into as much wine related things as I could there. I did some research on cold hardiness of grapevines. That's pretty much the only research I could find there was, you know, how can we keep these things alive during the winter? And um, I, I actually started working for a local brewery called Rock Mill, which makes great beer. I think they're all over the country now. But when when I was working for them, it was a super small family operation. We were we were brewing on these little crab cookers. They were like a couple gallon crab cookers and it was a lot of fun. And so I, I got my, my feet wet and a little bit of fermentation. Um, and then after I, after I graduated, I was like, all right, this is, it's go time. So I think it was, it was actually my senior year, um, in college during spring break, I had set up a bunch of interviews for harvest positions in, in Napa. So I went out there during my senior spring break and and just set up all these interviews. And um, one of which was at Opus One. And, you know, I didn't even know enough to, to really, um, you know, know the, what a big stepping stone that would be for me. But I, I went out there and, and Karen Kohler had given me the advice of, you know, don't wear white. And she's a, a petite woman herself. And she said, you know, maybe, maybe wear a couple sweaters to, to bulk yourself up a little bit. So I, I go there and I'm, I'm not old enough to rent a car yet. So I get dropped off at, at Opus. And if you've ever seen Opus, it's just this gorgeous estate and it's tucked back in the hills and it's got this really long, it's got to be at least a quarter mile driveway all lined with these old olive trees and this big, beautiful gate at the front that finishes into their their big oak door at the the cellar, and so I get dropped off there, and I'm I'm buzzing into the the little call button at the front gate, and 
nobody's answering because it's not open yet. And I'm waiting and waiting and keep calling and nobody's answering. And um, it's getting close to my interview time. So I'm like, all right, I'm going for it. So I had ended up having to climb the gate a little bit and slip through. And then I proceeded to, to run down this long, long driveway. And mind you, I'm wearing like three sweaters to, to make myself look less scrawny. And so anyway, I finally get there. I, I do the interview. Uh, it went great. And for some reason, I don't never know to this day if they saw me running there or not, but they, they hired me. So that was my first kind of step into the wine industry. So they hired me as the berry sampler. Yes, that is a real, a real job title. So I was the harvest berry sampler at Opus and it was an amazing first step into the industry. That's an amazing story. And tell us just briefly what a berry sampler does, and then we can get into har what a harvest entails and kind of your experience there for your next couple jobs before Dumal. Yeah. So I'm sure everyone you've had on the podcast, anybody, every, the, the main thing of winemaking is all vineyard focused. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't, you can't make good wine without having incredible sites. So having your first step into winemaking, be in the vineyard, I, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. So as a berry sampler, you're out there every, every morning early and you're basically sampling the grapes from all the different little parcels. So you're randomly sampling from all the different little parcels and then going into the lab and analyzing the, the sugar and the acids and the phenolics and then that information gets used to try to help make picking decisions. So that was a, a really awesome first experience. And then I, I realized then that I really needed to get some seller experience. So it's a common thing in the wine industry to jump hemispheres. So you can actually do multiple harvests in one year because of the different seasons. So I decided I would go to Australia to do some cellar work. So I jumped down to Australia after I finished that harvest and worked at a really small place in the Hunter Valley called Oakvale. And I was the only intern, which is a great spot to be because you're, you're forced to do, and in my case, learn everything in the cellar. So it was, um, you know, that, that first harvest experience is difficult because you're, you're basically useless at first because someone has, you don't know how to put on the, the fittings and you don't know how a pump works. And, you know, somebody has to take the time to, to really show you all those things. So I'm forever grateful to, to James Becker, the winemaker there for um, taking the time and being patient and, and showing me the right way to do everything. And, you know, he let, let me take time and go outside and stack empty picking bins with the forklift, which, you know, Forklifting is a very vital winemaking skill. So um, that was a great experience. And then he also was, was really passionate about Sonoma Pinot Noir. So it was actually in Australia making Shiraz that I was more exposed to Sonoma Pinot Noir. And that's where I, you know, really kind of fell in love uh, with the grape and kind of started thinking, all right, I think Sonoma's where I want to land. Yeah, that's, as you mentioned, common for going overseas and being able to work multiple harvests in a year and ramp up on the experience instead of just, mm -hmm. you know, having to delay and wait an entire year. So it, that sounds like a really great experience. And it sounds like really building on your knowledge, Opus One, and then going over there and then building, building and just advancing in your career. What was the next step after that and leading into Dumal? Yeah, so next step, um, at that point I had realized, all right, I, I like this crazy winemaking thing and I decided, all right, I'm, I'm gonna go back to school. So, and, and I would suggest to anybody who ever gets, you know, if I ever talk to people who are starting to get interested in wine, I always suggest doing some harvest and really getting in there and making sure that you really like the, the career because it's it's a really weird job it's um you know sometimes gets romanticized but it's hard work and 
it's an odd job. So I really, I always suggest to do that and, and do some harvest before you go take the time and spend the money to, to go to school. So, um, so at that point I, I knew I loved winemaking every time I got deeper and deeper in, I just fell more in love with it. So I decided to go get my master's in viticulture and enology at UC Davis. And it, it was a hard decision because you're there and you're already doing the thing, you know, that you love and want to do and to stop doing it and go back into the classroom and spend the money is a hard decision, but I'm, I'm really happy I decided to. Yeah. That's always a tough, tough one when you're, you're doing what you love and you're working and a lot of people, for a lot of people, it is really tough to go back to school and pursue a master's or pursue something else, continuing education. Um, but oftentimes, like you said, it's, it's, can work out even better and oftentimes is the right thing to do. And I've talked to different winemakers, some who come the more traditional path of coming up through school and some who are kind of just self-taught and learned on the job and through apprenticeships. And, you know, there's there's merits to both, but actually being able to study in school, I think, um, you know, I think it, that makes a lot of sense. Now, it sounds like, you know, you're, you're in this career, you're loving it, you found, you've really found something that you're passionate about. How did your, your friends and family and your, your husband, as you mentioned, and just people around you, how did they take to this? And it's something where you, it's very location specific too, right? So, and you ended yeah. up in, in one of the, the best places in the world to, to be able to make wine. But um, how, did, how did that go for you? Yeah, uh, my my family and my my now husband has have always been super supportive. It's and I think it helps to having developed this kind of determination to be a winemaker from a young age. It was kind of always my my driving force. So it was kind of came with the came with the package. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I, I've always had great, great support from family, but it is true. You know, it's very regional and, you know, regionally restricted. Um, so it, you know, that has those challenges, but the, the cool thing is that most places that grow great wine happen to be really amazing places. So that's a great, a great perk to winemaking that you, you end up being in these beautiful places. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's one of the coolest things about it. And a lot of people, I think, listening to the podcast here have been to Napa, Sonoma and probably regions, other regions in California as well, and maybe even Oregon, Washington. Those are kind of the regions we focus on here, everything on the West Coast. But, you know, no matter where you are here on the West Coast, all the, the different regions there I mentioned, it's you're going to have and be in an amazing place to live and, and especially work if you're in the industry. Let's go lead into Doom All, how you ended up there, and then we're gonna go into the, the company, the winery, all those type of things before yeah. we get into specific, um, you know, the vineyards and the wines and things like that. Of course, so yeah, so then I, I go back to the United States and um, I realize that school doesn't start till October and so I think, ah, hey, I can I can fit in another harvest here. So I reach out, back out to good old Karen Kohler, and she I ask, you know, what's some good Sonoma producers that I could squeeze in this harvest? And that's when she put me in touch with Andy Smith, who is the um, head winemaker, now viticulturist owner of Dumal. And so I reached out to Andy and just got lucky. They were looking for a harvest intern. So in 2014, I did a harvest at Dumal and just everything clicked. I, I loved the team. I, the vineyards were just incredible. The fruit was so beautiful. And I loved the, the winemaking philosophy and the culture. So had such a great experience there. And so I stayed really close with Andy and the team as I was going to school at UC Davis and then just got really lucky. I was right place, right time. And when I graduated, they were looking for an assistant winemaker. So I, I joined the team full time in 2016. Wow. That's yeah, that's great. That worked out like that. And tell us about Dumal. You told us a little about Andy and the philosophy there and, and the brand. 
Yeah, so so Dumal started in 1996 with with two owners and the original winemaker had two kids, Duncan and Molly, and that's where Dumal got its name, Duncan Molly. Very cool. Yeah. So, so true to Dumal roots, we've always just kind of been a, a family affair. And actually in, in 97, the, the original owners hired Paul Hobbs to be their consultant winemaker, and they got Andy Smith, who worked for Paul Hobbs at the time. And so Andy started making the wines in 98. So Dumal's just kind of naturally and organically and slowly developed to what we are today. So when it started, we were just making one Pinot and one Chardonnay. And with time, Andy developed these really beautiful connections and relationships with the Duttons, who own some fantastic vineyards in the Green Valley AVA of Russian River, where most our vineyards are. And he had relationships with some of the best growers and vineyard owners in this area, like Larry Hyde of Hyde Vineyard and Charlie Heinz of Heinz Vineyard. So um, we just kind of kept growing these, these relationships. And then early on, you know, Andy had the foresight to say, you know, if we really want to be serious, we need some estate vineyards. So in 2004, we planted our estate vineyard, which is in, again, the Green Valley AVA, kind of on Occidental Road as you're going out towards the little town of Occidental, right by this little tiny town called Grayton. So um, we've got our estate vineyard there, has about 30 acres, and it's just been kind of a little organic growth. Um, and now we we work with almost about 25 different vineyard sites, all of which we either own or our estate or are these long term, you know, leases and relationships that we've had for some of them 20 plus years. Wow. Yeah, let's get into the vineyards a little bit. So you mentioned the estate vineyard. You touched on it a little bit there, but let's go a little bit deeper and then we can talk about those three, the other three vineyards that you had mentioned. And I know there's many more and <laughs> we can't cover everything, but just to give people a little taste of, of kind of what's going on. And then maybe more, more broadly too, a little bit just on Russian River and how you think about the region and how people should think about it who are either getting into wine and getting more serious about it, or even people who, who are more serious and collectors and things, just from your perspective. Yeah, yeah. So we're, again, really lucky that we we have this kind of range of just world-class vineyard sites we get to work with. And, you know, we're intimately involved in all the farming. And, you know, I think that I like to say we're kind of in the, the golden era at Dumont because we've got you know, all our vineyards now are 15 plus years old and then compound that with all of our experience uh, with the sites it just kind of allows us to make world-class wine every year. And um, we're, we're kind of focused in the, the Green Valley AVA. It's kind of in the, in the southwest corner of the Russian River. So it's a little bit, there's a lot more kind of rolling hills there. So you've got interesting aspects to for vineyards and it's kind of the first area that the fog comes in off the, the bay. And then it's kind of the last place that the fog burns off. So it tends to be a little, a little cooler, a little wetter and a fantastic place for growing Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir. So we like to jokingly call it the tenderloin of the Russian river. But we also, we also work with vineyards like we own Flax Vineyard, which is on West Side Road just on kind of the iconic strip of West Side Road where, you know, Rockioli and David Ramey and um, William Selium and all these just really iconic vineyard sites are. And, you know, that's, although they're, they're geographically close, you know, it makes completely different wine. So we're always, our, our goal on the winemaking side is always to let those characteristics of the vineyard site show. Um, so, you know, then in, in Russian River, we're, in general, you're really lucky because you get you get to kind of have the best of both. You can there's enough sunlight to get beautiful ripe fruit, and then there's also the nice cool fogs. So you're able to retain acidity. So I think they 
especially in the Green Valley, we just are able to make extremely balanced, expressive, vineyard expressive wines. Yeah, and tell us about the philosophy in the vineyard, in the estate vineyard, as far as farming and those types of things. Yeah, so um, our estate vineyard is really unique because it's super high density. So a normal vineyard might be, the typical vineyards maybe 1,300 vines per acre. And at our state, it's 3,600. So the, the vines are super closely packed. And, and that does a couple things. So um, one, it, it makes the vines compete with each other. They're, they're closer. So inevitably, their roots have to go deeper into the ground to compete for resources. And, and then you also get, um, if you can imagine the, the canopies of the vines, they're much closer together. So you get a lot more natural kind of shading so there's less kind of direct sunlight on the grape clusters. And it also keeps the soils really nice and cool. So, you know, peak growing season when it can be really hot out during peak day, the soils stay really nice and cool. And that's good for the whole microbial population down there and just overall soil health. And it, it keeps our vineyard very um, self-sustaining. We don't need, typically we don't need to irrigate and the vines are quite uh, self-regulating and quite naturally balanced. Yeah, and without the irrigation, is that because the climate, as you mentioned with the fog and, and being close to the ocean there, it, the there's enough moisture or does it have to do season by season with the rain or how does that work? Because sometimes I'll talk to people about dry farming and they'll talk about, you know, it's very vineyard sp specific and you can only do it with certain vineyards. Um, but how, how does it actually work with you? For with sure. You guys there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely site specific, vintage specific, but in general, that area typically gets, enough rainfall and we're able to go through mm -hmm. the season without irrigating. Um, but you know, we, we keep a super close eye where our philosophy is let's put in the work in the vineyard. So we're out there after harvest, you know, it's, the, the work is constant. So, you know, we're out there making the, the helping make the pruning decisions and, you know, how are we going to compost and, leafing and shoot positioning. So there's all this, this work that goes out um, during the, the whole year. And the goal being, you know, let's put the work in there so that we get the highest quality grapes coming in on, on harvest day so that we can really kind of have a light touch in the, the cellar. So we don't have any, no, no recipe. So, you know, if it's a year and we need to put a little irrigation on, we will. But typically in that area, the, the vines don't need it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you guys have some great stuff on the website. We're going to link in the show notes, dumall.com. That's D-U-M-O-L.com. You have a, an amazing website with a lot of uh, details and notes here for people who really want to dig into the stuff, which is really great. Let's get into a little bit about picking decision. You mentioned the tool, the device that you use to uh, to help with that. And, you know, we can get into bricks and things like that if you want to, but how do you think about it? What's the philosophy? Is Andy making the final call or is it kind of a, a group uh, decision? How does that work? And there's obviously mainly on the estate vineyard, I'm assuming, but, um, you know, I'm not sure if you're, if you're actually controlling that on the other, some of the other vineyards as well, where you're buying fruit, et cetera. Oh yeah, no, we are intimately, you know, we make all the farming calls and mm -hmm. all the all the decisions for every vineyard that we farm and, and make wine from. So we're got it. Every, yeah, so it's it's a lot of a lot of uh, decisions to be made during. It's a harvest. lot of vineyards <laughs> to be <Yeah>. managing. <laughs> yeah, but it it keeps it fun and it you know it takes years and years of seeing a vineyard and working with it to to really understand it and so that's what we have going for us, which is kind of quite special. And so for, for us, making picking decisions is kind of threefold. So 
the first thing is you got to be out in the vineyards watching it throughout the season. Um, so you know kind of what the overall health and status of the, the site is. And so we do a lot of, of vineyard walking and tasting when it when things are starting to get close. So we'll go out there and, you know, you're looking at the integrity of the vines. Are the, the bottom leaves, are they starting to yellow? Do the, the vines look like they have more to give still? And, and of course, tasting the berries, you know, seeing how firm the, the pulp is and when you eat it, how, how tender and how, um, how soft are the skins and, you know, what's the balance in your mouth of, of sweetness and acid. And, and you look at the seeds and you see, you know, how are they starting to brown? Are they starting to be, you know, mature seeds or are they still really green and, and bitter? And so that's kind of the, the first piece of it. And then we, we always, we do lots of sampling. So we, we have all these little micro parcels within all of our vineyards. So we take a random sample of clusters from the specific area and we take them back to the winery and we squish them up. We make sure we squish every little tiny, tiny little Pinot berry that's in there. And, and then we do some analysis. So we, we measure the, the sugar, the bricks, and then we measure the acids and we look at those balance and, and those help us make the decisions. And then we also let the juice sit on the skins that we've squished up. We usually let them soak on the skins for half a day or a day. And what we want to see is how how easily all of those flavors and colors are extracting out of the skins into that juice. And that helps us know what's the physiological ripeness of the vineyard. You know, maybe what and what's happened a little bit with um, you know, changing climate things is sometimes the sugar ripeness can kind of race ahead of the physiological ripeness of the, the vineyard site. So maybe the sugars are close to ready, but the vine actually hasn't, the grapes haven't actually been on the vine for that long. So maybe the actual flavors and, and color and, you know, density of the, the wine isn't quite there yet. So we like to look at that as well, because we want, we, you know, there's people that pick really early and you know can make really beautiful quite austere very high acid wines and there's people that like to leave the vines the grapes on the vine for a long time and get really high sugars and make really you know softer really ripe luscious wines and those can be delicious too but what we what we try to do is always pick somewhere in the middle so our goal when when you pick early or really late, you know, you're you're more having a putting a hand on the style of the wine rather than letting the the specific vineyard site characteristics show because you're kind of driving the style of the wine based on on when you pick. So our goal is always to kind of pick the vineyard at the the prime time where you get a balance of you want we want to get uh, deepness and concentration and really beautiful flavors from our, our vineyard sites while still having really bright, nice acidity and, you know, still having uh, essence of little minerality and, and balance. So that's always our goal. We want to pick the, the grapes when they're showing the most expressive kind of full picture um, example of the vineyard site that they came from. Yeah, that's some really some really great insight, and that that definitely makes a lot of sense. I often hear how the picking decision is one of the most important things. I guess just in the sense of you can't undo it once it's already been done. Exactly. Once, once you're in the cellar, you can. There's things that you can do. Maybe sometimes you don't always want to do them, but there, there's things that you can do to manipulate the wine or kind of push things into a different direction or try to repair a mistake that may have happened. But um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you talked about, you know, great wine starts in the vineyard, which is the cliche, but it's it's obviously so true. And then so leading true. into that picking decision, getting that balance as perfect as you can, just makes a lot of sense intuitively as well. Mm -hmm. So let's get into some of the wines here. You touched on the vineyards. As I mentioned, there's some great information on the website. There's so many wines, beautiful wines you make, and we can't cover everything. So let's touch on the estate wines, the Pinot and the Chardonnay. 
Let's start with the Chardonnay first. So start with the white first, and then we'll, we'll lead into the reds. Yeah. So, um, so for this is from our estate vineyard. So again, that um, really high density planting, and so you get you know a little less of just upfront golden fruits, and you're gonna get a little bit more kind of terroir driven wine, little minerality, um, and so and and at our estate like I said, because of that high density and our kind of focus on soil health and never, never asking the vines to do too much. You know, we're, we're the long game. So we, we never ask them to produce too much fruit or, or push themselves too hard. We want to, to keep the vines happy and in balance so that they're going to keep producing great wine for years and years. So um, this site always makes these really tiny, compact, um, quite dense clusters and they, they make this just beautifully expressive wine um, of our, I think it's one of our most site driven wines that we make. And for our, our Chardonnay winemaking, we, we press everything whole cluster in our, our, we have a Wilms press, which is a, like a press that they use for German Riesling. It's, it's very, we press the wines kind of like you would press champagne. So we go mm. very, very slow and very gentle. And you um, do a hundred percent whole cluster for all the chardon for the all the estate chardonnay for each vintage. Yeah, so all in all of our wines, which is pretty cool. So we don't we make all of our wines farm all of our wines, you know, the same. We mm -hmm. we don't make any wines differently for certain bottling. So kind of the differences you taste in our wines are all going to be site specific, which is pretty neat. So all of our whites we whole cluster press everything gets picked at night so the grapes come in really nice and cool and we gently whole cluster press them the the interns probably hate it but we do like this ridiculously long five hour press cycle which you know normally people maybe do an hour and a half or something but um we do this ridiculously long press cycle and why we do that we don't turn the press much and what we want we want to make sure We've spent all that time in the year farming these grapes and getting them to this really high uh, quality standard in the vineyard. And so when we when we go to get the juice, we want to make sure we're getting all of those little fatty acids and and proteins and little particulates that are in the the skins that I like to call it the kind of the soul of the soul of the wine or all those little juice solids from the Chardonnay. So. We want to make sure that we get that all out of the the grapes without being harsh and extracting any any skin tannins. So with the with our really long, slow, gentle press cycle, we're able to do that. Yeah, and then I see as far as the barrel aging, twelve months and thirty five percent new French oak, and then six months in settling tank. Talk about how that process works and thoughts around use of oak and things like that. Yeah, so um, we barrel ferment everything and we use, yeah, about 25, 30% new French oak. Um, we like to use a mix of different cooperages. And what we do, so we ferment in barrel, it goes through malolactic in barrel slowly. It's a slow process because we have those really nice high acid wines. So it's quite a harsh environment to get it to go through malolactic fermentation, but eventually it does. And, um, and then we just leave the wine and all these different little micro parcels, little tiny barrel groups. And we, we leave the wine to mature on the lees for about 11 months. And after that time, we actually go down and we, we taste barrel to barrel and we make um, make our wine. So in my mind, you know, I almost think of every wine as being some type of blend because we're blending different, different little barrels and within one vineyard. So say our, for example, our state vineyard, we, we don't just pick it a couple times. We, we don't just pick the different, you hear a lot about clones. We don't just pick the clones separate. We actually go out there with our, our flagging tape and we, we flag off the little knoll we flag off the the shady area around the tree and we we pick the perimeter vines separate so we end up having within one vineyard 
site, we end up having all these different little barrel groups and these different little kind of expressions of one vineyard site. And so after 11 months, we're able to taste down to specific barrels and pull, okay, a couple barrels from this area and a couple barrels from that area um, to make our blends. And it's not like every year it's the exact same because, you know, maybe it's a, a really hot heat, you know, there's a lot of heat spells or something, and maybe a more vigorous spot is actually making the most kind of expressive, beautiful wine that year. And so maybe a majority of the estate bottling will be from that section this year. So it always varies, which is, is pretty cool. So after, after 11 months, we, we select our specific barrels and then oftentimes people will, will bottle their, their Chardonnay or their last vintage wines before the next harvest. And that's just because of logistics. You've got to make room. You've got a bunch of grapes coming in. You need empty barrels. But for us, we've, we've found that the wine really benefits from doing this extended tank aging. So before, after 11 months, before the next harvest, we make our blends and we actually take the wine out of barrel and we put it into a stainless steel tank. And we, we tippy top up the tank so there's got no head space. And it takes the wine out of this slightly um, oxidative state of the barrel because oxygen can actually go through those barrels, which is a good thing. You want some, some evolution with a little bit of oxygen. But it takes it out of that environment and puts it into a totally inert stainless steel vessel. And we leave it in there for three to five to sometimes six months and let it kind of marry as a blend in there without any oxygen evolution. And the wine really tightens up and it brightens up and it kind of marries as a blend. And then it all those little um, leaves, all the little solids that are in the wine over that long period of time are able to um, create like a really tight pack on the bottom of the tank. And so we can then remove the wine off of that, those little sediments. And typically we can bottle our wine unfiltered, unfined, which is, is pretty cool. Wow, that's great. And you mentioned the lees just briefly, if you want to talk about that very briefly if, for people who don't know what that is. Yeah, so, so lees is a term we use for all the little particulates in the wine. So it's a whole mix of things. It's little aggregated fatty acids and it's the spent yeast cells and the bacteria cells and they they kind of um and different little acids and potassium that bind together and they all end up kind of falling out of the wine and they create this kind of sediment on the bottom of the barrels and they're they're actually quite strong antioxidants and they have a lot of flavor and the little yeast cells actually end up kind of breaking apart and they can release a lot of um, great flavor profiles as well. So it's a really important part of winemaking is, is how you manage those, those lees. So we, especially if you have really high-end sites and really um, high-quality grapes, you know, a lot of times the lees, especially in Chardonnay, are a really important tool that you want to incorporate and keep in your wine. Yeah, and thanks for the explanation. What really comes out as you're t telling the story and talking about the process is just the attention to detail. And, you know, as you had mentioned before, the age of these vines are going on 50, roughly about 15 years and uh, are almost over that now. And being yeah. able to farm that land and really be hands-on and to to, to know the land so well and, and so thoroughly, I think really, you know, just shows how it leads into the quality and, and keeps the, the quality at such a really high level because you have the vineyard and, you know, working in conjunction with the seller. Exactly. And, you know, I, I just finished my seventh harvest at Dumal and I'm, I'm the newbie. So <laughs> yeah, Andy's I've been there for a while. Yeah, and so Andy's been making the wine since yeah '98, and and then there's Julie Cooper, who's our other associate winemaker, and she's been there since the early 2000s, and and Jaime is our cellar master, and he's been there also since the early 2000s. So there's a lot of combined um, combined experience, which is is kind of special these days. So 
Yeah, and let's move on to the estate Pinot Noir. Again, a lot of great information here on the website. Um, it says 100% Dumal Coffee Lane Vineyard. So first, first, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Coffee Lane Vineyard. Um, of course, in the Russian River Valley, talks about the clones, Calera and Swan, and um, you know gives a lot of great information here on the website. Yeah, so this is our part of our estate vineyard that we we planted in 04. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, yeah, so it's in that Green Valley area of the Russian River again. So that kind of southwest corner. So a little heavier fog, a little bit. Um, I like to think of it as kind of coastal Russian River Valley. So you tend to get wines, yeah, that have still the classic Russian River, you know, really beautiful kind of succulent fruit, but you also get this a little more coastal influence. So you get really high acidity and, um, you know, can get some crunchy aspects to the wine as well. So um, that's the location. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. And, and with that type of wine, I, I always just go back to how it pairs well with food and uh, of course, goes well on its own too, but it's just so versatile. Or you can have it with a lot of different dishes if you love pairing food and wine together. Um, or if you're looking for something with that's a little more delicate, and maybe you're ready to step up your wine game for people who are listening out there who who are maybe newer to wine or who have had a pinot where it's kind of you know hits you in the face and there's a, a ton of fruit, which you know, this this wine clearly has too, but as you mentioned, being able to taste the nuance of having, being from an environment that has a little more fog, a little more cooler climate, so you're going to get that crunchiness, as you said, a little bit more acidity. Is that a good way to think about it, or how, how, for, do, you, for how sure. do you think about it and describe it to people? For sure, and again, I think this wine is also defined by the, the high density, and you know, it's it the high density planting, which I keep talking about, but it's, it's a really important piece to it. It makes farming a lot more difficult because you can't just fit a normal tractor down those rows. We actually have to have this fancy French tractor called a Caval and it actually straddles the vines to, to fit down the rows. So it makes, it makes farming a lot more difficult, but for us, it's, it's worth it. The benefits we get from it. And for me, this wine is kind of driven by not only its site, but also that kind of characteristic. And like I said, the the high density, you get less of the just upfront fruit and it pulls the wine a little bit more into a an earthy tone. So you get more, you know, you get little tannins on the back end and you get um, a little more minerality to it. And I, I find the wine always has this really beautiful kind of dark purity to the wine. And definitely a food wine. So, yeah, and and I'll say too, I'll mention that these wines got outstanding scores from critics, as do as do most of your wines throughout the lineup. But Jeb Dunnick gave this wine, gave the Pinot and the Chard a ninety-seven point, which really caught my eye. I use critics like Jeb as a guidepost. I think is a good way to to think about it. Um, but it's. You know, a really solid and a really good guidepost, especially for someone who uh, is out there who's you know looking to c- collect and looking for just kind of like I'm trying to think of another word for guidepost, but another yeah. another uh, kind of opinion to just help guide you in a direction where you know when you're looking and researching so many different wines and you can't buy everything that's going to be released it helps kind of narrow it down and, and definitely points you in the right direction. How do you think about uh, scores and critics as a winemaker? Yeah, you know, it's, um, we're not, it's a a great honor, really. It is, it is. And it's, you know, we're not, we don't make wines for scores or this or that. And, you know, we don't, we don't think about that at, at any point when we're, we're making our wines, you know, we make yeah, the wines that we that we ultimately want to want to drink, you know, we want to hit that balance point. We want, you know, wine lovers of of all types to be able to taste our wine and say, "Wow, that has something for me." And we want to make wines that are 
you know, delicious upon release. Cause you know, it's hard, it's hard to lay down your wines. You know, you want them to be delicious when, when people purchase them so that they can open them that night and just enjoy them. But also wines that, you know, have some structure and, you know, lower alcohol and nice high acid that they're also going to be able to age beautifully. So um, our, our goal is always that, you know, we want to make um, expressive, true to, true to vineyard type wines that are going to be delicious on release, be able to age, be able to go with food and that are wines that we like to drink. And then it's just kind of a, an added, um, you know, just a really nice when, when critics like them as well. So it's a kind of keeps, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice jester and we're, we're always really happy to get that, but we don't really think about it at all as we're, we're making the wines. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's a perfect way to describe it. That kind of leads into the last point that I usually ask people about is how do you think about laying down these wines? And when I say these wines, you have so many in the lineup, but I guess we'll touch on the estate wines first and you can talk, you know, maybe talk about philosophy on some of the other wines that you make. But you know, laying down these wines as far as aging and then decanting and uh, temperature, serving temperature, those type of things. So I think first, just just starting with the aging and and when you think about the window to drink these wines. Yeah. So so like I said, our all of our wines are we make them so that they're going to be delicious to drink when they're released. You know, we don't want to release wines that aren't going to be fun to open right when you, right when you get them. So yeah, it's always kind of a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it can be worth waiting for, but yeah, (laughs) exactly. And you know, that's kind of the best wines I think kind of hit that both hit both. Um, and so, you know, and certain vintages lend themselves more to, you know, for example, the 2018 vintage, just because of the chemistry of the vintage and how the growing season went, those wines are just classic, great examples of wines that are going to age beautifully. You can, you just, they've got so much wound concentration to them and they've got really nice high acids, but they've got, you know, moderate alcohols and they've got really nice kind of tannin profiles. So like there's certain vintages that always lend themselves, like certain vintages are more obvious, like, wow, these are going to just age beautifully. But I would say in general, all of our wines can be aged and enjoyed. Typically, you know, California Chardonnay especially, you know, isn't something, and it's all your own personal opinion, but, you know, typically I don't find at least, you know, a 20-year-old California Chardonnay typically to me isn't more interesting than it is, you know, at release or after five years. So in general, I like to enjoy my California Chardonnays, you know, upon release to 10, maybe 15 years. And some of they can, they can develop really beautiful characteristics over that time. So it is, it is really fun to give them some age. Um, and then the, the Pinot Noir, because we farm our, our Pinot to have that balance, the, the Pinots will be delicious for, you know, 30, 30 years, you know, you could, you could open those up and they should keep evolving. Um, so so yeah, yeah I, I think I think there's there's benefits to both. You know, I'm I think they they can be delicious right out of the gate, and then they're also gonna you know keep developing and get get interesting with with time as well. Yeah, no, that's that makes a lot of sense. And how do you personally think about decanting and serving temperature? I know it sometimes it can be a personal choice. Um, a lot of people have this mentality or kind of thinking where reds need to be decanted more it's funny though i was listening to antonio galoni another popular critic talking about he's more apt to decant a white wine than a red (laughs) i I kind of struck me i was like oh it's kind of interesting of course it probably depends on the varietal and, and things like that but um it was just one comment he made a couple of years yeah. ago, but uh, you know, I think, and then as far as temperature, there can be the sense of the not really a cliche, but just kind of the, a good heuristic or rule of thumb is that white wines are usually served too cold, 
and then it kind of mutes the taste and then reds can be served too warm which I definitely have seen in the past going to restaurants or something like that and trying to adjust that in my own life. But first, how do you yeah. think about the decanning piece? Yeah, and that's going to be, you know, wine specific. But in general, I yeah. think especially our wines, you know, they have enough um, kind of concentration and depth to them. They're not, you know, they're not delicate. They're not going to fall apart or anything. I, mm -hmm. I actually like to, whenever... We open our wines we i like to have a glass and then you know stick the cork back in and come back to it on day two and day three and see how it evolves it's a good way over, to do it yeah. over time and and the best wines should keep evolving over that time period so i you know i would almost say every wine can every great wine can can benefit from a little decanting um and i totally agree oftentimes white wines especially if you're you know high quality white wine you don't you don't want anything muted. You want to get all of those nuances and flavors. So I also agree. You, you, you never want to serve the whites too cold. I, I like our whites, you know, just below, below room temperature and, and our reds kind of in that, you know, just, just above where I would like the whites. So um, I definitely think you really get the full picture of the wine if you, you don't want to have it too cool. So, um, you, you know, you just miss some of the kind of more delicate nuances and, and notes if, if the wine's too cold. And uh, the, the Pinots, yeah, our Pinots I like, you know, just about cellar temperature is, is great. So not just kind of in that just below, below room temperature. Yeah, no, it's great tips for people. And I love the idea about you know popping it open having a glass throw it back in the fridge and and do that for you know two or three nights and see how the wine evolves a great tip for people out there who haven't tried that it's a really fun exercise especially mm -hmm. with a really high quality bottle jenna this has yeah. been so fun having you on and learning your whole story about getting into the wine business and going so deep into dumal for people who you know haven't heard a lot of this stuff and, and want to go deeper this has been great to understand the philosophy and everything behind the scenes in the winemaking tell people how they can get access to the mailing list and actually you know purchase wines and when releases come like that of course we're going to link the website here in the show notes people can sign up for the email list through the website but just tell people how they can get involved and be able to taste the wines <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we, you can go to our, our website, dumal.com, and and sign up to become a member. And then we run on a kind of an allocation system. So we release wine four times a year with each season, and it's just an allocation base. So you can can sign up today and become a member. And and members also get um, complimentary tastings at our winery. And, and Windsor. So if if you're interested in the wines or have had the wines and, and want to taste more, I would definitely suggest signing up. Well, great. Again, we'll, we'll have the link here in the show notes. People can go check that out. What's next for you and the team right now? Harvest is is wrapped up, I assume, over there. And now you're on to, to next steps. Yes, we are wrapped up. It was a great 2021 harvest. Um, so we're just kind of, we we just finished our last, pressed off our last tank a couple weeks ago. So we're we're just starting to come up for air here and, and start looking at, at last vintage stuff and start thinking about, you know, pruning here in, in January. So the, the, the story goes on and yeah, we're, we're actually the, we're taking the team today. We're going to drive out to Hirsch Vineyard. So we always like to take the, the interns to do some industry visits, which is good fun. So that's that's where I'm headed next. So it should be a great day. Jenna, this is uh, so fun having you and really appreciate you coming on. Of course. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. 
In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at GoldenWestPod, or you can email us at GoldenWestPodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.